catechism question number four. If you need a catechism, there should be some on the back table. Also, you can find it in the Trinity Hymnal, the Shorter Catechism. We continue our sermon series in this. We want to begin by reviewing the questions that we have um, already done. We don't have uh, so many that we can't still do that. So uh, just getting underway with this study. So let's recite these together. I'll ask a question and then we'll answer in unison. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Surely that's true. God is our maker. He made us for Himself. Not only do we miss out on the source of our highest joy and fulfillment as human beings if we do not make it our chief end to glorify Him, but it's also quite sinful of us to to have our to give our maker less glory than and honor than what he is due he has made us for himself and so it is for us then to give ourselves to him but how do we know what god wants us to do that's the next question subject of question 2 question 2 what rule hath god given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him the word of god which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. From the beginning, God has always communicated with us as His people and told us how to live life as He created it to be lived. Since the fall, this communication has been centered around the gospel and the redemptive promise of God, how to be reconciled to Him, how to be restored to Him through Christ. And after Jesus came, that revelation was complete. All along the way, many of the prophets had put their, uh, the words as God appointed in writing, and the apostles and prophets did the same, and now we have a complete book with God's full revelation. All that we need to know is now contained in the Bible. Because Jesus was the final word, and he came and brought that. And all of the words that we have are given by inspiration of God. They're they're God-breathed, as we saw, so that we can look to them to guide us. Now, question three asks us about what the Scriptures teach. So, question three, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now those are the two things that uh, really summarize the whole teaching of Scripture. I explained last week that they also are the summary of the Catechism. That questions 1 through 38 in the Catechism speak about what we're to believe concerning God. And then questions 39 to the end, um, 107, speak about the duty that God requires of us, how we're to live. Now today, we're taking up the next question, which is question four, and it is the foundational question about God. We have, uh, I think it's three questions about God that are given specifically about who He is. And uh, so let's recite this one together. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. If life is about glorifying God, then it's important for us to know who he is. So as I was preparing to preach on this subject today, I was really struck in a fresh way with the very first statement in the Catechism that God is a spirit. What does that mean to us? Let's start with this truth. God is a spirit. It's a direct quotation from John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples have uh, decided to go through Samaria. And the Jews had, of course, no regard for the Samaritans um, because the Samaritans, contrary to God's law, had intermarried with other nations, and they had refused to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, as God had appointed in the Old Testament. 
So Jesus starts talking to this Samaritan woman and telling her that he is able to give her living water, basically eternal life if she were to ask him. And as her conversation goes on, she asks him about how God is to be worshipped. Interesting that she would ask that question because she knows we don't worship at Jerusalem like you Jews do. So you tell me what, what's the right way. And Jesus explains that at the time that she's asking this question, that the time is at hand, the time has come by which that you'll no longer worship at Jerusalem. Worship will not be centered in any place like that. And uh, she understands the times to be the times when the Messiah is expected. She shows that in the conversation with him. And uh, the reason that it will not be at Jerusalem anymore or a particular place where there's a temple or something like that is because God is a spirit. That's what Jesus brings out. There's a change, of course, because of the Messiah coming, but there's a fuller, richer kind of worship now that he has come because God is a spirit. Listen as I read to you from John 4, 19 through 26, where he gives her these words. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now with these words, Jesus is reminding her that God is not ultimately tied to places because God is spirit. The arrangement of the old, in the Old Testament was temporary. It was only provisional and to continue until Messiah came. As Jesus says in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is. It's right upon us when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The hour is the hour of his coming to replace all of those ceremonies that were done with men's hands and with, the, with fleshly things like the, the blood of bulls and goats and their offering of their bodies and such things, those sacrifices are called carnal or fleshly, like carnal, so, you know, a word that means flesh, uh, ordinances that God appointed until the Messiah came. In verse 25, the woman shows that she recognizes that he's talking about the change that will come when the Messiah comes. And Jesus tells her straight up that, that he's the Messiah. It's kind of unusual, isn't it? Because we see him not ever doing that. Saying, no, don't tell anybody. But uh, you see, there was no danger with the Samaritans wanting to rise up and try to make him king. So he could tell them, and they go and tell each other about it. Because they, they didn't think that he was going to come and make a, a kingdom of Samaritans. So uh, he, he just tells them, yeah, I'm the Messiah. But he explains to her, in this, and this is our focus here, that God is spirit. A spirit, what is that? Well, spirit is a personal being. What do you mean by a personal being? Well, it has a seat, a spirit has a seat of personality, likes and dislikes, relationships, ability to do things, to, to and know what you're doing. A spirit is a being without a body. We have a spirit. Okay, that's the part of us that's not our body. But uh, our spirits are different than God being spirit because our spirits are tied to a body. That's the reason that we're called souls. God and the angels are spirits that don't have bodies and they're not called souls. A soul is someone that has both a body and a spirit. God is just spirit without body. Now, it's not a bad thing that we have bodies, because God made us this way. It's actually a good thing, because God knows what he was doing when he made us. 
we're not going to lose our bodies. Some people have that idea that when you become spiritual, that that means you lose your body. No, it means that your spirit controls your body instead of your body, your spirit. That's part of it. (laughs) But God is transcendent, you see. He's above the whole material creation. He's not part of it. He's not made up of atoms and molecules and things like that. God is transcendent to all that. He's above it all. He brought it all into existence. He didn't make it out of stuff that he already had or out of himself somehow. It was his whole idea to bring the whole world, all that it is, into being. Now that Jesus has come, our worship is much less carnal and much more spiritual because now we connect with God by faith in the finished work of Jesus. We worship him, in other words, in spirit and in truth. You need to understand what that means. In spirit does not mean here in the Holy Spirit. And we should worship in the Holy Spirit, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about our spirits. We worship in spirit. Um, And in truth is not talking about truth as opposed to falsehood. People in the Old Testament were to worship it in falsehood. That's not the change that's being made. But uh, it's truth as opposed to symbols and types. Okay, like if I have something that's symbolic of another thing, it's not the real thing. But he's, it's now with the real thing that we worship. So the blood of bulls and goats offered by priests at the temple didn't actually reconcile anyone to God. They represented Jesus who came and died and shed his blood to reconcile us to God. Now we come not with animal sacrifices, mere symbols, but we come in truth with the blood of Christ, with faith in Christ. We rest in what Christ has done through Jesus and we give thanks and rejoice as God works in our hearts. So we're not so busy killing a bunch of animals and taking the blood and putting it on the altar and building fires and doing all these things that we do that way, but it's more of a spiritual worship where we connect with God in, in this um, more, more spiritual way, we rest in what God has done through Christ. We give thanks and rejoice as God works in our hearts. Now, of course, since we do not have a body, we do things, I mean, since we, we do not have a body, since we do have a body, we do many things with our bodies in worship. Like we speak and we hear. Those are things actually that are body functions, aren't they? And we, we have... Um, you know, we sing praises to God and, and, and that sort of thing. We eat, of course, the Lord's Supper and uh, have baptism when we are initiated. But our connection with God is more spiritual with our spirit connecting with his spirit in these kind of um, ordinances and worship, or else our worship is empty and worthless if we're just saying words that we're not really thinking about. It was always that way in the Old Testament, too, that they were, they were to worship with their spirit. But it was much more of a bodily exercise than it is for us now. God is spirit. He's wonderfully free from boundaries that we have, the boundaries that we know in our experience. The Catechism says that He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. In other words, there is a fullness in him that can't be surpassed. You understand what I mean by that? Like if something is filled up, you can't make it any more full. And God is infinite. He, he fills every, there's no, you can't be greater when you're God. He's as great, he, he fills greatness. He fills the whole idea of, of everything. So you can't expand on him. There's already a, a great fullness there. Infinite means that there are no limitations to him. He can be everywhere. And he can know exactly what is going on from the smallest particle here on the earth to the smallest particle on some faraway planet on another galaxy and all of them at the same time. He knows all that is in our hearts. He knows our words before we even speak them. Psalm 139.4 says, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He has unlimited power and authority over all creation. He made it all, and He sustains it all, and He can do with it whatever He wants. He has no limits at all. He called it into being by merely speaking it into existence, and so it was. He forgets nothing, and at the same time, He entirely knows the future. God remembers the past as well as the present, and He knows the future as well as the present. 
Eternal means that he has no beginning and no ending. Okay, that was infinite. We just looked at he's an eternal spirit. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he was not tied to the existence of this world. He's from everlasting. His very name, Yahweh, means I am and refers to the fact that he is sheer existence. Or you might say pure existence. He just is. He's not dependent on anything. He didn't come from anything. He didn't evolve from anything. He just is. He depends on nothing, but nothing can continue without him. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around this because we are not everlasting. I mean, how can anything be everlasting, you think, right? How, how, how can anything last forever? How could it go all back forever? But then when you stop and try to think about that, you can't do it. Because you say, okay, so yeah, maybe, maybe there was some beginning. And then you think, well, what was before that? You're stuck, right? Well, there has to be a beginning. But what was before that? We, we, can't, we can't think of not having everlasting because everlasting is a real thing. God is the real thing. Who, he is the one who is everlasting. Uh, there can be nothing before him as God. He is the origin of all things. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your hand, I mean, by your will, they exist and were created. Then unchangeable. It's the next thing the catechism says about God. He's a spirit who is also unchangeable. Now, that's just what it sounds like. As eternal fullness itself, we've seen he can't be increased or diminished. He can't add new information. He already knows everything. For us, it would be very sad if we were unable to grow or to improve. But for God, he can't be improved upon. He is ultimate and perfect. So any change in him would be corruption. It's the only way he could go if, there was, if he could. Yet this doesn't mean that he is not relational to us in time. For example, before your conversion, then you're not right with God. You're under his wrath and curse. But after you believe... Then you are received and you, you're justified. You weren't justified before you believed. You're reconciled to God. And the relationship with God changes. So he changes in relation to us in that way. But you see, he himself does not change. It's that he changes us and we change. And then there's a new kind of relationship. Of course, the Bible talks about how he loved us even before the foundation of the world. But, and he elected us and chose us and planned our salvation. But we weren't justified yet. We weren't justified from before the foundation. We were justified in time when we believed. We were justified by faith. So what I'm saying there is that God has real relationship with us in this way so that when we do something, there's a response from him back and forth, just like we have with each other. He enters into our circle of time and he works with us in in these things, even though he knows the whole future and has planned it. It's hard to understand how, when we think about God and himself and the members of the Trinity, how they can have a relationship with each other, because the only thing we know of relationships is that they involve change. They involve learning about each other and growing together and all of those kind of things. But the Trinity, the three persons, are unchangeable. So we need to understand something here, that the love that we have in our finite, temporal, changeable way has an infinite eternal, unchangeable way with God. In other words, ours is the copy of the original. God's love is not reflective of what we know as love. Our love is the thing that is the lesser thing. There's a reflection of something that's far greater that we can't even get our heads around. Because I can't think of, I, I have a hard time thinking of how I love in an eternal, unchangeable way. But God does that because he's God. But what does it mean to us? And this is where this is what I was talking about that really, really struck me as I was thinking about this. What does it mean to us that God is an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit? How does that affect us? How does that affect you? Well, it means that our relationship with Him is intimate beyond any other relationship that you have. 
No one else really knows you but God. No one else really knows what you think. What you think of them. What you think about anything. God knows it all. Every single detail. That's an extreme relationship. And it's unsettling. Here's a holy God who knows everything in your heart. Let's not pretend here. There's a lot that's not good inside our heart. What if other people knew everything that you thought? You probably wouldn't have very good relationships with anyone. There are stuff that you don't say that, you know, that you might say. Uh, what if they even knew your deepest motives? The ones that you're ashamed to even face yourself. The motives that you have that you, you don't even look at and don't even recognize. You've never really uncovered them because you don't want to. You don't want to go there. God knows all that. And He's the one who abhors sin. And we're pretty good with sin. We're easy with it. God is not. He's holy. He's a consuming fire and envelops iniquity in, in His wrath when He judges those who commit iniquity. It's even more unsettling. you got a God who's so near, knows every single thought, every single motive, and He's intolerant, completely intolerant towards sin. He won't allow it. When you come to God's Son, Jesus Christ as Savior, that's when everything changes. It means that you have full forgiveness through His suffering and death. And that means that you can face God as the knowing one. The one that knows all about you. Psalm 130 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We fear God when we live consciously and honestly before His face. It means that you can think about His intimate nearness and live in the conscious reality of it without trying to hide. Because you have a Savior. What intimacy you can now know with God. A deeper intimacy than you can have with any human being. Doesn't even come close. There is no condemnation because of forgiveness in Christ. Rather, there is tremendous potential to grow as you walk before God and look to Him to renew your mind and your life from the inside out. But how can you harbor stuff that's against God deliberately and knowingly when you know that God is so near, that He sees it all? How can you deliberately do what you know is displeasing to God and not deal with it? How can you live day by day and not deal with the things that you need to deal with? It's a precious thing. It's an intimacy. He, he knows if you love Him. He knows if you're seeking to please Him. He totally knows. And if you are, yeah, we're weak. We don't do very well. But if, you're, if your aim is to please God, He knows that. No matter what anybody else thinks about you, you're, you're serving Him, you're doing His will, and people criticize you and they say you're doing evil, you know if you're walking with God. And He knows it more than anyone. He knows if you're sacrificing for Him. He knows all. And He is nearer to you than you are to yourself. And He is willing and able to help you to walk with Him. What potential there is for personal growth if you will walk with God. If you'll come near to Him who knows everything. What potential for an ever-deepening dependence on Him. How often do you need His help? A potential for learning to trust Him, to call on Him in the time of need and in trouble, to have gratitude for Him as you commune with Him and acknowledging all the things that He has done for you, as you consciously walk in fellowship with Him. See, we miss so much. This is how we were made. We were made to walk spirit in spirit with God. Not hand in hand. He doesn't have a body. But spirit to spirit with intimate communion 
with God. And that's what we fell away from. That's what we lost. We're ever supposed to be depending on him, trusting in him, pleasing him. That was the way that Jesus Christ lived. That's the way that we will live when we're perfected in glory. Surely, I mentioned this this morning, but it's such a big thing with us. There's no place for bitterness or for feeling like you're a victim or someone that God has wronged. That is, I think, the great problem of our day. Everybody wants to be a victim. Oh, well, look what was done to me. That's why I'm like this, why I do that, why I do whatever. You're not a victim. You've not been wronged by God. You may have been wronged greatly by other people, but not by God. How can you be bitter? How can you complain when the eternal God has forgiven you and he knows all the rot that's in your heart? How can you refuse to forgive others when God has forgiven you and he knows all about you? You don't know much about other people. He knows all about you. How can you hold things against him when he's so gracious? How can you be unwilling to serve God and to serve your neighbor? How can you live with unconfessed sin before him as if it doesn't matter? Got no idea of God. Set out to live for God in Christ from this day forward. Live for him. Deal with all your sins and live in the freedom of forgiveness with your God. He is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit and live. Live in reality. Live in truth. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yes, let's admire God as we're thinking about who He is today. Infinite. God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. These are the ways that God is very different from us because we're temporal and we're changeable and we're finite. We're flesh, not pure spirit. We're limited, temporal. He is the creator. We are the creatures. But now let's look at what is called communicable attributes. Those are the ways that we're like him. It's hard to say that uh, he's like us, but ways that we're like him is the better way to say it. His communicable attributes are those attributes of his that he has given to us as those who are made in his image. The Catechism speaks of seven of his attributes that he has also given to us to possess, albeit on a different level. Okay, you can see that it says that he is infinite, and eternal, and unchangeable in each of these seven attributes. We're not. We have the same attributes, but for us, it's not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It's being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, these things are things that he possesses in an infinite, eternal way that he imparts to his creatures in a finite, changeable way. We call these communicable attributes because God shares them with us. We have communion with him in these attributes. So the first of these attributes, we've really kind of already covered his being. We know what it is to be a being, don't we? Because God is a being, we're beings. And so we have that, we share that with God, that we're beings. Though we're on a creaturely level, we still have personalities. We're able to engage with what is around us. We're able to respond to things. We're able to enjoy relationships. We're beings because God made us beings. Therefore, we can understand what it is for God to be a being. But God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being who is spirit. That calls for us to praise him. We say, Lord, who is like you? Psalm 139.7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Because you see, his being is everywhere. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And then Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. 
If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Do you know God as an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being? The sum of his thoughts, it, it, it's astounding. You can't even begin to, to fathom. Secondly, the Catechism summarizes the teaching of Scripture about God by saying that He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His wisdom. We know what wisdom is too, don't we? Because God has enabled us as human beings to have wisdom. Now, now that we're fallen into sin, we've become fools and our hearts are darkened, but we at least know what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what needs to be done in order to attain a good outcome. A fool builds his house on the sand and it's destroyed by the first flood. A wise man builds his house on the rock and it stands. We all know what wisdom is because God has given us wisdom and a capacity for wisdom. Since we have a capacity for wisdom, we also have a capacity for foolishness, which is wisdom corrupted. But consider the extent to which God has wisdom. Scripture tells us, that his foolishness is wiser than our highest wisdom. We may see people with tremendous abilities to understand nature or the human body or with wisdom to make policies or wisdom to do marvels with technology, to build computers, to go to the moon. We see a lot of wisdom. And we're right to admire wisdom that we see in our fellow human beings. But God's wisdom, all, all of his foolishness compared to that highest wisdom, it's higher than their wisdom. So exaggerated way of saying it. Just think about the wisdom that went into designing the entire universe so that all of it works together as it should. We ourselves, as Psalm 139 says, are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're just beginning to understand all that has gone into making us. It seems like we keep getting further in our microscopes. You know, we look down and we say, oh, look, there's cells. And we're all impressed. Wow, there's these things that we're made up of called cells. And then we look inside the cell. Whoa, there's a whole city going on inside each one of our cells of things going around and different things being delivered back and forth across the cell. It's, it's amazing. What's, what, what will we find beneath that level? We always think we've got to the bottom of things. But uh, who knows? I don't know. But to, to think of the creative genius of God who came up with the idea of all of those things that he's designed and that we should have eyes that can see and then he made things to see and he made things that have color and things like that for us to see. He, he came up with all that, that we have tongues that can taste. It's God's wisdom. And then we can, we can uh, enjoy things. And that's just one of millions of things that we could come up with related to his wisdom. And then we see in Scripture the wise way that he deals with his people. In the Bible, we see how he brings his people through times and into things that cause them to grow and to develop. And that make them, it makes things very interesting how God works. And that cause them to learn more about God. We see how God led his people through the ages and worked out his plan in a way that brought glory to himself. It'd be so boring if we were in charge of what happened. God works in a very dynamic and special way. The most marvelous revelation of God's wisdom of all is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is called the wisdom of God, Colossians 1.24. Let's just say that in Christ, he figured out a way to save sinners like us that actually magnifies his justice at the same time. So that the more mercy he shows to sinners, the more justice it shows and the more justice he shows in, in doing that, then the more mercy is magnified. By punishing Christ, his justice is satisfied by his own remarkable love and mercy that provides a savior for us. So the fact that justice demands so much highlights the fact that love and mercy provide so much. It's a plan of remarkable wisdom that no one could have ever come up with. It's built on the wisdom of God. When you walk with him, you can look to him for wisdom and he will give it to you. He will feed you from his word. If you really start walking with him, like I was talking about before, where you realize how near he is and you start looking to him for wisdom and guidance and you come to his word, you will grow. You will learn so much about God and how to live. 
The next attribute the Catechism mentions is power. That God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His power. We know power too because it's something that He shared with us. We have quite amazing powers, really. If you stop and think about it, we're used to them. But uh, you can move yourself. You can move yourself from one place to another. All around the world, that's kind of amazing. You have the power to pick things up and move things around. You can even make things that didn't exist before. In one way, we can admire the power of an artist to make something beautiful. In another way, we can admire the power of an Olympic athlete that, that breaks records. But just consider the power of God as it's revealed to us in Scripture. Isaiah 40 reminds us that the Lord is never faint or weary, that He is the one who empowers all of us. He is the source of all power and strength. And think of the power in creation. God spoke, and it was so. Who could do that? He spoke light into being. He spoke the stars and the galaxies and the earth with all of its attributes spoken into being. Great kings of the earth sometimes suppose themselves to have unstoppable power until God stops them. And then they realize who they are. You think about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, different kings like that that were humbled by God or Pharaoh. God revealed his power when he parted the Red Sea and delivered his people. And Pharaoh said, oh, I'm not going to let you go. Who's the Lord that I shall obey him? Well, he found out very, very quickly. The whole Assyrian army, I've got Hezekiah like a bird in a cage trapped in Jerusalem. I just reach in my hand and I take him out. God says, nope, that's as far as you come. All his army dies and he goes home and gets killed by his sons. And he's worshiping his, his idol temple. So that's, that's the way that God works. But here's the best part. When Jesus came, he showed power over the curse. Jesus showed us power that can change us so that we repent and we follow God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you if you come to Jesus Christ. And that is a remarkable power. He can give you new life whereby you can live in the intimacy I was talking about before with God forever and ever. In other words, where the time is coming, if you come to Christ, the time is coming where you can live that way without needing to be forgiven. Now, we'll always need to have an atonement for what we've done in the past, but that God will bring you to the place when we get to glory by His power, where you can actually walk with God like that, with no sin whatsoever, nothing displeasing to your Father, always intimately connected with Him who knows all things. It is remarkable to think about. Next, we're told that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness. Holiness is a more difficult thing for us to understand. But God shares this with us as well. It's a communicable attribute. Is something that we can and should have because God tells us to be holy as He is holy. But what does it mean to be holy? Well, usually when holiness is spoken of, it's, it is spoken of in the context of staying away from things that would defile us. And sin is the thing that defiles us. Perhaps one way to say it is that it makes us ugly. It's a moral defect. It's a ruination of what we ought to be. Holiness, then, is the beauty of moral perfection. God's holiness is His perfection, His freedom from all sin and defilement. It's very alluring. It's attractive to us. It draws us in. But at the same time, it's terrifying. Like the burning bush, you want to come near, and yet you're afraid to come near because it's such a, a glorious and, and, and perfect thing. God's holiness is terrifying because it means that He doesn't approve at all of what is defiled. In fact, He destroys it. He is this glorious God who has no moral corruption whatsoever in any of His ways. Nothing in Him that defiles. Nothing that degrades. He is altogether lovely and pure, and it's our great privilege to learn of His holiness. Now that Jesus has come, we can see true holiness in a human being. On our level, we can see in Jesus what a human being without defect is like. No spot or blemish, nothing that defiles. Walk with God then knowing that he is holy in all his ways. 
walk with Him knowing that He abhors all moral defects and look to Him to sanctify you, to make you more and more like Jesus. He is the Lord who sanctifies by His Spirit. God is further said to be infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His justice. Justice is something that, that we all like, at least in a certain way. Uh, if you're playing a game with your sister and she cheats, you want someone to deal with her. <laughs> That's justice. If you're at work and the boss decides that uh, he's going to go to Hawaii with your, the money that he was supposed to pay you with, then you want justice. You want somebody to do something about it because you were treated unjustly. So we like, we like justice in that context. But um, God, you see, is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His justice. That means that He visits sin with the punishment that it deserves, and He rewards righteousness with the reward that it deserves. He alone is qualified to be the judge of all, and He will judge all of us. We are to glory in this about God. But it's hard to glory in justice when you're guilty, when you're the guilty one who deserves to be punished, when you're the boss that ran off with the money or the little sister that cheated, you go to court to get justice when you've been wronged, but you don't like to be taken to court when you've done wrong. So you like justice and you don't like justice. Yet when we see Jesus receiving the punishment that we deserve so that God can be just, then we can start glorying, glorifying God for his justice. We can see that God is unchangeable in his justice and be glad. Instead of saying, oh, I wish God could let go of some of the justice. No, we can say justice is great because Christ atones for our sin and therefore it can be dealt with justly. God can't simply let sin go, you see. It must be punished accordingly. Some people don't want God to be infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. They say, oh, he can let it go. No, he can't. It requires Christ for you to be reconciled to God. Every sin deserves the infinite wrath and punishment of God. Every sin needs atonement. That's why he went so far as to send his only son to the cross that justice might be satisfied. Glory and justice. Only Jesus going to the cross and suffering the pains of hell could, could remove the guilt from us. What a glorious, uncompromising justice he has and how beautiful it is when it's born in us. It is God's glory that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. Know this about him as you walk with him so that when others do wrong to you, you will know that he will deal with it. God is also said to be infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. We can see his goodness in creation. Or he referred to that someone who were talking about uh, his wisdom. But uh, so I've spoken about how that he gave us eyes that can see and ears that can hear with things that are to be heard. This is his goodness, this is him being kind to us. There are tons of joys and pleasures that he gave us simply to delight us. He didn't have to give us ability to distinguish different flavors and foods and give us all the different flavors that there are in the world. He could have just had one or two. And, uh, but yet he has done this. He, he would have a world where there's marriage and where there's children and a world with, uh, where, where he uh, causes angels and people to know, be able to know him. He made us to be able to know him. He didn't have to do that either. Could have just had a, you know, plants or something. They don't cause as much trouble. Um, but he, he, he did this. It's all his kindness. And in Jesus, we see that God's goodness goes far beyond any of these things. Here in his infinite mercy, he gave his son for us. Who could measure such goodness? Who could measure such marvelous love, such grace, such care about others that he himself would, would send his son to bear their sins? Those who had wronged him. It wasn't like that we just fell into a bad time and he came to help us. It was that we were deliberately, obnoxiously against him, contrary to him, wrong toward him, reprehensible behavior toward him. And he came to deal with that in mercy. The Bible says that God is good. The Bible says that God is love. It is for you to see his great goodness and to bask in the glory of it as you walk with him. He wants you to delight in who he is, in his goodness, in his love. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. 
you are to love others as he has loved you. Finally, the Catechism summarizes the scripture as teaching that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. In the Bible, truth and faithfulness are pretty much synonymous. I've told you before that the Hebrew word truth is the word we get amen from. Unlike the idols that men make, God is always true, faithful to his promises. He comes through with what he has said. Always, always. He does not lie. In Psalm 138, it says that God has exalted his word above all his name. God's name is what he has revealed about himself. And this tells us that God's main way of revealing himself to us is by his word. We read that Old Testament passage when God appeared before Moses, and then he speaks. He gives him a description of who he is. It's not the visual thing. God says, you saw no form, but you heard the word. In the word, he promises what he will do for us. And that's one of the chief ways that we know him, his truth that's revealed to us, the truth of his covenant. We would not know of his intentions for us, say, to bring us to glory through faith in Jesus Christ if he didn't tell us. So we looked at that recently, didn't we, when we looked at the word in recent weeks, his promises and things. He lets us know who he is by his promises of truth. But unlike the false God, God's, God is always true to his promises, We're so used to empty promises from other people that are never fulfilled. But God, you see, is unchangeable in his truth. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, utterly reliable. He always completes what he's promised. He always comes through. In no way is this so clearly seen as the promise that God made a long time ago to bless his people when he said, I will be God to you I will make you my people. He made that promise. That was a promise that required extreme effort in order to fulfill. You know, sometimes you make a promise and you oh, well, this is more than I thought it was. I can't do this. God didn't do that. Once the promise was made, the promise was certain. Even though his people were all sinners, God said that he would bless them. And now we see how far he was willing to go. So far is to send Christ to die on the cross. He had made a promise, and he wouldn't go back on it, even though it meant crucifixion. Of course, he knew that all along. He completely followed through because he's a God of truth, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. There's no place for lies. He hates lies. He hates it when we lie. Don't ever lie. That's completely unchristian to lie. It goes against what God is. It's contrary to him. We live in a world that God made and where things happen that God has appointed and we need to be honest and true. All that he has ever said, all that he has ever promised is rock solid and it is as good as done. How we ought to trust him, how we ought to delight in him is truth. How intolerant we ought to be of lies and deception in our own lives as we walk before him who is so near to us. And now, I can say to you what Moses said to God's people long ago. For I proclaim, Deuteronomy 32, 3, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Rejoice in the privilege that is yours to know this one who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Please stand. Heavenly Father, we praise and magnify your name, for you are God who is spirit. You're not something that's made with hands. You're not something that is of material makeup and substance. You're above all that. You transcend all of that. You're infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we praise you, O God, that that you have given us attributes that we share with you. 
that we have being and wisdom and power and holiness, justice, goodness and truth, and we could name many other attributes. We thank you, Lord, for, for all that you have blessed us with as human beings. And we pray, Lord, that as those who have come to you for salvation, that we would see these things that have been broken and defiled in us to be restored to the place that you want them to have. Father, that that as you are just, that we would become just. As you are good, that we would become good. That as you are wise, that we would become wise. Father, not that we would know all that you know, but that what we know would be that which is pure and not that which is twisted and, and distorted and corrupt. Father, in all of these things, we pray that we would, we would honor you. Lord, our power, that we would use our power for blessing the way you do instead of for harm. Oh, Lord, there's so many things that we need from you. We need redemption. We need you to work in us. Father, you are beautiful. You're altogether lovely, and we are not. And so, Lord, we come to you asking you, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, work in us, change us, transform us so that we will become more like Jesus. What a wonderful promise that is that you said that you had predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son. And you said that when we see him, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. Father, thinking about the power that brought the world into existence, the power that can take us and make us like Jesus is even a greater power. And we praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have. And we ask you, O Lord, to do your gracious and glorious, kind work in us through Jesus Christ. Father, we cannot dream of coming before you apart from our Savior when we know that you know every single thing about us. But we thank you that even though you do, that there is full forgiveness in Christ, even of the things that we haven't even admitted to ourselves yet. We praise you, O Lord. We thank you for your mercy is full and your kindness is rich. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessing of the Lord our God. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Please be seated for a moment.